On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment that are worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Kate, it's our first episode of Complicated Conversations. We spoke to Mary Adkins last week, and one thing she said has really stayed with me. She relayed some wisdom from her seventh grade English teacher who said, Remember, the Ark was built by amateurs, and the Titanic was built by professionals. And I wanted to talk about that. What did that mean to you, Kate? I thought when she said it that it meant that you don't have to be perfect or professional to create something or build something or produce something. And that so many people maybe wait until they're ready or they have the right degree or the right license or whatever it is. And really, anybody can just create, even if you are an amateur. Yes. Okay. That was definitely something I took away from it. I think that was my immediate thought as well. We've talked about that on the sleeping with other people. Leslie Headland had said that. And we know Amy Poehler always says that start way mm-hmm. before you're ready. And then, I, but then I was thinking about it a little more. And I was thinking of the reasons behind it. The amateurs who built the ark, if you believe in that story, it was out of necessity. Right. It came from a deep need and a drive to, to do to save themselves, really. But what yeah. save themselves mean literally or or I think even metaphorically, how people can start writing because they need an outlet to sort of save their life or do something creative to save their lives. And then when you get to the part in your career or your life where you're the professional and you're doing things out of ego or doing things out of driven by something else that that's when it sinks and that's when it oh. falls apart. Yeah, I was like I that. like that. So it's a reminder to sort of keep your ego in check, right? Even when you're getting better, you can always keep your ego in check and keep working from that place of necessity. Yeah. Um, and that drive as opposed to like, oh, I'm going to you know, build something from a place of ego that's just going to fall apart and kill lots of people. Yeah, I like <laughs> I mean, that. Maybe not that so is... so literally in the case <laughs> of, so uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I just thought it was layered and that was what I kind of loved about it. And I really wonder what her teacher meant when she said it. Well, or maybe right? just as a teacher of a middle school student, yeah. she's just thinking basically, listen, just because you're in seventh grade doesn't mean you can't yes. do whatever oh. you want to do. I mean, your nine-year-old started a podcast, Yes, right? that's right. I mean, right? Maybe it's just a Empowering teacher encouraging. Them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. You don't have to wait. Oh, I t- that's, that's another layer, Kate. I tell my kids that all the time. I'm like, do not wait till you grow up to do anything. Do it yeah. now. Figure out your version of doing it now. So That's true. So maybe it was like that. You're right. Oh, look at that. 
There we Keep, go. Keeps giving. Okay. Well, anyway, so we squadcasted with Mary Atkins, author of two novels, When You Read This and Her Latest Privilege. And our conversation bounced between the serious and the playful. Mary discussed how the Me Too movement affected her book. Yeah. So privilege sold the day that I had my son and it was, so it was like the best 24 hours of my life, (laughs) but it had sold based on sample chapters and a synopsis. And a lot needed to change in that story, like massive amounts to the point that like the synopsis didn't match what that first draft was. And some of that is because of what had happened, like in, in culture, because I, was trying to, I wanted to set it in the present, but now all that, like the Me Too movement had happened. And really the Brock Turner case was a, a big kind of cultural milestone that changed how that story needed to be told. And so it's, it was really interesting, like writing fiction before something has happened in the world and then realizing after that thing actually happens in the world, like now my book doesn't make a lot of sense. Just the kind of subconscious ways in which I was writing it in a world where, where that victim impact statement, I don't know if you guys remember that, but that she had that mm. really powerful anonymous victim impact yeah. statement, that, right? That re- went viral when it comes to kind of campus sexual assault. That was like a really, that was a before and after moment, you know, yeah. like there was like the world before that and the world after that. And we dished on the reality TV stars in Nashville where Mary now lives with her family. I'm also a fan of Kristen Cavallari and she lives there. She lives here. Yeah, I love her show. And <laughs> also yeah. there are... So the, I don't know if either of you is a Bachelor fan, yes. but I am. And this is Bachelor town here. Really? I mean, so many people who have been on that show move here. And it's- Oh my God, I did really, not know that. Yeah, they're sightings. Mary revealed the moment she knew that being a lawyer was not for her. I went to law school. I loved law school. And then my second day of being a lawyer- I started looking for a different job. (laughs) (laughs) The second day. The second day. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I remember it really vividly because I was sitting in this office and thinking, wow, I am living someone else. I do not know whose life I am in right now, but it is not mine. And I, how did I get here? Like, how did I get here? I've, so then I was retracing my steps. I'm like, what did I do to get into this life? That's not my life. It just, it was such a surreal feeling. And Mary surprised us with her depth of knowledge about astrology. So early on in Privilege, Annie Googles Tyler and she finds out a little bit about him, including this line, which we could not ignore because we talk about this a lot on our podcast. He was a Pisces, but didn't believe in astrology. <laughs> okay, first of all, what's your sign? <laughs> My sun sign is... Oh, oh forget it. Now we're yes. Love. We're in love. <laughs> Clearly, we were taken by Mary, and we expect you will be too. So today we're talking with Mary Adkins, author of Privilege. Privilege is the story of three very different women whose lives intersect unexpectedly when one of them, Annie, accuses a classmate of rape. The momentum of this book centers around the incidents of sexual assault, the buildup to it, and as well as the aftermath. But the most compelling aspect for me is the exploration of the power and resilience of women, even in a world that continues to disappoint and fail them. 
So before we dive into the book, first, we want to say thank you for agreeing to sit down to have this conversation with us. As no, Corinne so said, we're so excited. So thank you. I know the book's only been out for two days. So how are you feeling? Um, are you excited, nervous, obsessed yeah. with checking stats or <laughs> reviews or maybe willfully ignoring all those things? And I know also it's not your first book. So does that make it easier for you or do you now know things you didn't know then the first time around? I do think there's less anxiety there's less anxiety this time around, but that not, that's not to say I don't have anxiety this time. It's just I had so much last time because it was my <laughs> first book. Um, but this time, yeah, I mean, I obsessively refresh Amazon to see if anyone's reviewed it and then I read the reviews several times each. Mine was um, one there. <laughs> I was one Yeah, of them. I know. I was so happy to see that. Um <laughs> I, which, and then I, if I, you know, see anything that bothers me, I'll complain about it to my husband or my mom and they'll say, don't read the reviews. And I'll say, I know I'm not going to anymore <laughs> within an hour, within an hour of reading. Um, but no, overall, I've been really, um, really pleased with people's reactions to the book so far. And it's exciting. I mean, it's kind of a weird time to have a book coming out, honestly, like my, yeah. my book events are kind of being canceled left and right for, for good reason. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I guess the silver lining is if we're all staying home, it's a good time to buy books to read. <laughs> you can't watch too much news. Right. Yeah, you exactly. To... You can only watch so much coronavirus news. Yes, you have to escape. That's what I was doing, too. Mm -hmm. Our podcast is really centered around complicated women. And Kate and I wanted to introduce these three complicated young women in our own words. And then we'll hand them back to you to hear a little bit more about what you have to say. Cool. So Annie is someone I could relate to. Uh, she's from a really small town where most people go to community college or onto full-time employment after high school. But Annie has this unique ticket that opens unexpected doors, her bassoon. Okay. That gets her into Carter, the Harvard of the South, where she works really hard giving bassoon lessons three times a week and saves up her money to get plastic surgery. Kind of an unexpected thing. Of course, it's cosmetic, but it's not a nose job or a boob job. She's really, she's getting laser treatments for scars that she has on her legs that are a result of an accident. And I just thought that there were so many layers there. She acts in unexpected ways and she just surprises me all the time. And Stasia, is it Stasia? Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay, how I pronounce so, it. Okay. So <laughs> Stasia doesn't go to college at Carter with Annie and B, but she works there in the coffee shop, which immediately for me set her up as different or as an other. She curses like a sailor, which we love. She <laughs> smokes even though she's in nursing school. She's a rule follower and pays her tuition uh, for school even when she could no longer attend class. And despite growing up with a mother who fudged her own resume countless times and raised her not to care if bill collectors knocked on the door, she's driven by a single desire, which is to escape poverty. And then there's B. B to me, is the ultimate complicated woman. She is asked to hold space for every duality, right? Black and white, right and wrong, especially as the advocate for Tyler, the man Annie is accusing of rape. B is biracial. Her mother was black, her father white. She has a mind for science, like her mother, but the passion for cr criminal justice that was born out of a friend's racial profiling incident. Unlike Annie, she is from a prestigious all-girls boarding school and was raised with money and privilege. 
And she has a natural talent for improv. I mean, that's just, I love that. <laughs> yes, those details were just so wonderful. So tell us about your relationship with these women. Um, who came first? Why three? And how did you know you needed to write them this way? Yeah. First of all, I love your summaries of the characters. And I, especially saying B holds a space for every duality. That's a, that I really like that way of thinking about her. I haven't thought about her that way before. Yeah. I, so um, the, the book came to me as an idea in the summer of 2015. And it really kind of came to me in, in its current form. I mean, I obviously did some revision, but I, I, I thought of it as the story of an alleged sexual assault or you know, a sexual assault that has some ambiguity around it on a college campus told from the perspectives of three different women. Like that, that was the idea from the beginning. And I think it's because at the time, I mean, this was before the Me Too movement. It was before, um, it was before the, the, I think another high profile thing, the, the Brock Turner case and the, the victim impact statement of Chanel Miller when she was still anonymous Mm -hmm. and all, all of that had not happened yet. Um, but I do think there was a cultural conversation starting up around sexual assault. Like people were starting to, and sexual harassment. I think it was kind of picking up steam. And I, I was thinking about it, um, from a couple of different perspectives. So I, I had written an essay for the Atlantic about a year earlier, um, on, on consent and how, a lot of times victims of assault, I, I think, because I had I had heard of this happening before from friends and I myself had experienced it, will ch- kind of choose to choose to consent under perceived duress as a way to prevent something from happening. So like right. a perverse way of preventing the or, or I don't know if it's perverse in a way or a very rational way of right, acting right. In a, to a perceived threat is to just consent so that nothing has happened. And then you're not a victim and you get to move on with your life. And mm-hmm. that was like um, a phenomenon that I didn't hear really being discussed much uh, in popular media. And and it, to me, it was a, a very present kind of dynamic in the, in the personal like hidden world of people who have experienced some form of assault um, or, or, you know, or avoided it, you know, in that way, in that way. Yeah. And then not just, not just, um, kind of the psychological gymnastics of doing that in the moment, but also if one does happen, like in the aftermath of it, like, can I convince myself that it wasn't what I thought it was? Like, there's so much ambiguity around it. And especially a lot of times when it's not, you know, it's not, sort of a, um, a black and white situation. Like there's drinking involved and memories can be fuzzy and, you know, what signals and miscommunications can, you know, what signals can be missed. And so I was really interested in exploring that. Um, also, you know, I've like you guys went to law school. And so I also knew that, um, you know, there are, there are constraints around what we can do legally. And we, you know, we, take legal action based on not, not based on what happens in someone's mind, but, but on what their manifest behavior is. And that's important. And that's like a, a critical piece of our legal system. And so um, I thought that that was an interesting thing to examine around this, like all of this nuance and complication when it comes to, 
to assault. And then finally, um, I, I was interested in the relationships of women who, who knew someone accused and were close Mm -hmm. to someone accused Mm -hmm. because I, I remembered when I was in high school, my science teacher was accused of assaulting, sexually assaulting a student who, and I didn't know the student, but I did know my teacher and I really looked up to him. And I wrote this letter to the editor of our local paper defending him because it was a high profile accusation. And it was like a public accusation. And I wrote this letter and I I don't remember what I said. I think it was just something a 16 year old would say. And I'm looking, you know, looking back on that as an adult, I think, you know, Mm. um, I I obviously, I didn't know the circumstances of, I didn't even know the, the, teenage the the other the girl who was accusing him and I but I had this instinct to come to his defense because I knew him and I I looked up to him and I couldn't imagine that he was Mm -hmm. capable of something like that right and that that just it it made me really because I I haven't had other than that I haven't had the experience of someone I'm close to being accused of something you know that is Mm -hmm. pretty objectively like egregious and 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 harmful. And so I, I kind of thought of these characters as, as opportunities to explore all of those feelings. So you can, you can hear Annie's dilemma and B's dilemma, you know, just in the idea. Um, And I love that you didn't leave it with one incident with Annie, right? It was not just the one drunken time. And, and then you, because that let us explore, as you said, that, you know, the way you rationalize it, the mental gymnastics. And we've now heard, you know, maybe not when you were writing this, but we've now heard of so many people who try to reverse engineer, like I've dated my rapist. I, you know, that's very common. Yeah. 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 And we really got to explore that even, even though it's coming out more in the sort of national dialogue, there's still no real stories about it, fiction Mm -hmm. and um, that get to explore that. And I loved that, that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I keep thinking of it as being a very, being rational, I guess. And I, I think mm-hmm. the reason I keep kind of je- like defending Annie's actions and, and people like Annie in my head is because I think it can, people can see that. And even here, you know, we hear dating my rapist and we think that's crazy. Why would someone right. do that? And it, but in a way it like, there is a way of telling that, that it's a totally rational choice because- oh. I agree. Yeah. And I think that's why it's great to say something as strong as dating your rapist. And it is a little bit of shock value, but sometimes you need that shock to kind of get you out of that old way of thinking, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Which I think so many people have done. So Mm -hmm. this is your second novel, as we talked about before, which is a big departure from your first novel, which is more of uh, maybe in the rom-com genre. And it's also told through letters and emails, epistolary novel. Um, in our minds, that makes you a complicated woman right off the bat. <laughs> Before we read anything, just knowing that was like, okay, she's got some layers here. And I can't imagine that was easy to do. Anything you ever hear about publishing, once your publisher strikes, and the first book did well, they want to stay with that and put you in a box. How did you kind of fight that or get out of it. I, we really want to hear about that. Yeah. I um so I I wrote the first draft of Privilege before I had before I even had an no that's not true. I did have an agent for my first novel, but I had not sold my first novel yet. Um oh. so uh 
so and it wasn't a very early draft it didn't uh, you know i it, it changed a lot in the intervening years but the but the idea like you know i had some stuff on paper already and i do i intentionally with privilege wanted to try something different like that that was that that was a conscious choice um it was really fun. And, and when you read this, which was my first novel, like you said, it's epistolary. So it's told mainly through emails and through blog posts and even through drawings. And that was a fun challenge. That was a really fun challenge for me is to tell a story through that, through that medium. And then once I, but once I had done it, I, I just, I wanted the challenge of writing a, a tr- more traditional novel, like in, in form. I just want to pause though. I, I don't think a lot of people think that way. I mean, you're like, I just wanted the challenge. Oh, and really? Yeah. I think that's so worth saying that some people are kind of driven by that. I know we happen to be three women who are, <laughs> but I don't think that it's that common. And I love to hear you say like, you finished it and you wanted a new challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I, and even just to prove to myself, I could do it. You know, I think there's... And there's some fraud syndrome involved too. You know, I, th- I think there's a little part of me after writing my first novel that thought, well, it's not a real novel because it's told in a weird way, you know, which is absurd. I, yeah. I realize saying that, that that's absurd, but totally. I do think there was that little voice in my head that's like, but can you write a real novel? You know? <laughs> um, and then I'm like, of course I can. I'm going to do it. I'm going to prove to myself I can do it. Um, yeah. So there's like, you know, a little piece of, a little piece of that, but yeah, wanting, wanting the challenge of telling a story in a different, in a different way. And I, I did think about, you know, is there, is this the best way to tell this story? Like, do, do I want to do something a little more experimental? Like I did with, when you read this, I thought, I thought about that. And I'm in the, in the middle of privilege, there is a case file, you know, and, and there are some, there's the call, there's an anonymous humor columnist and the yeah. campus newspaper and that's in there. So there are some, little pieces of there's some op-eds so they're they're kind of like found documentation in sort of sporadically kind of um interwoven into the narrative but yeah they're not primary at all right um it's primarily just prose so you when you were going to your agent you said kind of right off the bat i have this other thing too and was it kind of a package deal or you just were upfront about i'm not going to do the same thing over and over yeah i so i we didn't even have to have that conversation. So I had already written much of privilege. I shared it with her. She thought it was strong and there was a lot there that was good. And so, um, so actually we sold, we sold the first book as a package deal with the second book in, in a couple of countries, not, not here, not in the U S but, um, but elsewhere, like the, which I also didn't realize could happen until it happened. Like I (laughs) sell a book outside the U S before I sold it in the U S. Um, so, so yeah, that was kind of happening pretty simultaneously. And then, um, and then, and then privilege sold in the U S before when you read this came out. So it had, it sold about a year before it came out. That's interesting. I think again, that's not the usual, the typical journey. And I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go too far off, but what about book three? I mean, I, I'm, are you thinking, you have to be thinking about it. You have, well, to, I'm, I'm writing it. So <laughs> I hope she's writing it. Yeah. Yeah. It, so I've sold book three to my same editor. Hey. And so I, yeah, it was really exciting. So that was in October, I think September or, or October. And I'm working on that now. And it's, um, 
It is called the right now tentatively titled uh, the caterer, and it is about a, a caterer to a billionaire in West Palm in Palm Beach, Florida, nice. and um, and his wife. So it's it's how their marriage is affected by this kind of crazy job that he has in Florida. Oh, wow, wow. another kind of departure, but more similar to privilege. More similar to privilege. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's the the format is. You know, it's like a traditional narrative. Oh, that's nice. great. That's great. Yeah. So besides the genre switch, we've heard you talk about your inner conflict around art and law, which both of us relate to deeply as lawyers. Mm -hmm. You clearly have this duality in you. On the one hand, you're a creative person, a novelist, a playwright, a writing teacher. On the other hand, you attended Yale Law School, and I know you only practiced for a short period of time, but... You have an interest in policy, in making a difference, in the transformative role of the legal and justice system, which is totally baked into this novel. So can you tell us a little bit more about these layers within you? Um, do you feel like they're layers accumulated on top of one another, or do they feel like they're sides that compete with one another? Yeah, because I'm always battling. I'm always battling. Yeah, I would. I want to hear both of you talk about this too. I can talk about this a long, long time. I ours bet. are battling. Or, or ours are competing. I think. Yeah. Ladder, but you seem to have layered them nicely. I think they're mostly competing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they're mostly competing. I mean, every like when I start to get insecure, or I am just in a waiting period when I you know I've written a draft and I've set it aside, or or I'm just restless in life, I decide I'm going to become a public defender. <laughs> oh my God. I'm like, I'm going back to law. And then I'll even, I'll like even write cover letters. You know, I like get pretty far into apply, actually applying for jobs. And then wow. I'm like, what am I doing? No, I'm not going to do oh that right gosh. now. Like uh, taking on a whole new job. Like I, and I've also been out of law so long that I think it would be, I don't know. It's not, it's never been felt like the actual right thing to get back into it in any right. meaningful way. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, that's what, what you always kind of lean back on and, and go to. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's, that's very similar. That's, but you yeah. managed with this book like I, to really bake it all, all of those parts of you together. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that part is fun. Like when yeah. I'm, you know, for, for privilege, I, um, I spoke really extensively with a friend who represents students in these kind of cases. Oh. And she was so, she was so helpful, but it was also just fun for me, like doing a deep dive into title nine and, mm -hmm. um, and all of the dynamics around it. She sent me a bunch of reading and she sent me, um, uh, decision letters. And I, I just got to like, have fun exploring that instead like of playing lawyer. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it is like playing lawyer. But I, it, it is also funny, because I had the feedback from so that case file that's in the middle of privilege. In a previous draft, it was um, a whole part two of the book, like I called it the book of evidence. And it was just this legal case file that I had so much fun putting together, yeah. but that my editor said like, this is a lot of legalese <laughs> that is not interesting to everyone else. <laughs> yeah. I love that section so much. Oh, thanks. Yeah. 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 It was, I mean, I think it's, it would, it's like the, the kind of, it was the kind of section that would be interesting to people who like reading yeah. legal documents, but that's not a huge 
proportion of the population. Yeah. Yeah, but you had just the right amount, well, yes. I think, for this. And yeah, listen, cut way down. readers are fascinated by books about the law, right? I mean, oh, the yeah. John Grishams. And the, my father right. used to read every legal book under the sun. And I was like, this not, I have no interest in those kind of ones, but like right. this. I love when it's worked into the story. Yeah, me too. I really like incorporating it into yeah. into fiction. And you do it very well. There's a good balance. There really is. Even though I would have taken more, I, I recognize <laughs> that the story has to keep moving on. And not everyone's a nerd like I am or right. like we are. <laughs> so um, talking again about just the theme of this podcast, we analyze complicated women and the women behind the scenes. And to us, they're really perfect because they're flawed. It's not despite their flaws. It's really what makes them, you know, interesting to us and, and compelling to us. So we were hoping maybe you could think of a story you'd like to share about a failure or a course correction, um, a crossroads that you wanted to share a little bit where you weren't sure in the moment, is this, is this going to ruin things or is this the end or, and it was really just a new beginning or a, or a new chapter. Yeah. Oh, that I've had so many of those. You have <laughs> so good to hear. Yeah. I mean, I went to law school. I loved law school. And then my second day of being a lawyer, I started looking for a different job. <laughs> <laughs> the second day. The second day. Yeah. And I I mean, and I remember it really vividly because I was sitting in this office and thinking wow, I am living someone else. I do not know whose life I am in right now, but it is not mine. And yes. I, how did I get here? Like, how did I get here? I've So then I was retracing my steps. I'm like, what did I do to get into this life? That's not my life. It just, it was such a surreal feeling. And I, you know, even at the time, like I was aware of how privileged I was to have this job that many people would want. And I, and in conversations with people, like a lot of people are like, but you have a great job, but you have a great job. And I understood that objectively, that that having a job as a lawyer in New York City was a great job that a lot of people would want, but it just didn't feel like it was my life. Like I was playing, I was like in a play or something <laughs> like that I never got to take off my costume. Yes. I had that moment set. It took me into my second year when I was a second year and it all settled in. And I just remember waking up at three o'clock in the morning. I had my Blackberry. I'm like, what am I doing with my, and then I just got on my computer and started Googling like how to be a teacher. I, it was just like anything. I just yeah. knew I wanted out. And it was that same feeling like, and it's real. it was really hard for me because this is what I had done. I had done a lot to get here. I, I yeah. planned, I had gone to school, I had taken huge tests like the LSATs and the bar exam. And and then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm here and this is not my life. It was, yeah, oh. I, I know that feeling. Yeah. The same. Yeah. It, it's the same. We had the same experience. And I, you know, and there were all these, while I kind of leading up to that and then while I think leading up to that, like in the months before I actually started the job, I had a feeling it wasn't going to go well because I was doing things that weren't like I accrued a whole bunch of credit card debt like an insane amount of credit card debt, mostly because I decided that I had bed bugs, even though I maybe didn't have bed bugs. And I bought a whole new apartment on my credit card. I was, once I started my job, I was breaking out in hives. Oh, I became wow. convinced I had an ulcer. I, I, and I went to a doctor and told him I had ADD and had, it had just been undiagnosed my whole life. <laughs> and he's like, I don't think you have ADD. <laughs> um, he's like, 
And then you told him you were like a first year in a law firm. And he's like, oh, forget it. I, I know what's wrong <laughs> right. with you. I can diagnose that easily. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you just need Lexapro or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I started scrambling to get out and yeah. And I tried to find all kinds of jobs. I mean, my, my dad's one piece of it. He was like, please just don't quit until you have a job. I mean, you know, be a, become a barista, but like have some kind of income and, right. Um, so I was looking for all kinds of things and I, speaking of failures, like I, I made them and I think about this sometimes and feel bad. (laughs) I thought maybe what I should do is become a lawyer for a different place. And so I found this little, this solo firm and put this guy through the hassle of interviewing me and hiring me. And then I quit on my first day with him. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Don't even remember your name, but sorry. <laughs> that. um, yeah, but that's better than if you started relying on you doing the work. Yeah. The first day, you're like, I got to cut and run. This right. Is yeah. I, like, as soon as I think fast, though, second day, first day, I mean, you don't linger. Good. I give <laughs> right. you a lot of credit. I mean, it's true. I, well, the, yeah, I wasn't able to quit on my second day, but I did start looking for another job. on my right. second day. But for, yeah, for that guy, he, he sent me, he gave me my first assignment and I read it and it was immediate. It's like, nope, I'm out. I'm sorry. I can't do this. <laughs> like a, oh, wow. a dramatic, like just sort of, I, I can't even make myself do this. I'm so sorry. Bye. Um, that came that that was like a costly decision to leave law because like I said, I still had the credit card debt. I hadn't actually paid that off yet. I still had student loan debt, all my right. student loan debt. And and I have a generous loan forgiveness program through my school, but so that did that helped with that. Mm-hmm. Um but I moved I broke my lease and moved to a cheaper apartment. I started tutoring and um it was just so liberating. I mean, even though I was like poor and kind of you know, living from paycheck to paycheck. My grandmother gave me some money to pay off some of my debt. And I was just so much happier. (laughs) I know Um, that feeling too. Yeah. On the other side of the terror of realizing you're not living your own life is the liberation that comes when you start trying to. Yeah. Yeah, It was just, um, yeah, I already told you, but the, the day that I quit, my parents happened to be in town visiting. They were living in North Carolina at the time. Yeah. They were in North Carolina and, um, they were in town and I, I quit. And then the three of us went to a karaoke bar and at like 4 PM, I mean, it was really early (laughs) and my dad and I sang proud Mary. I was Tina and he was Ike. So we were, it was like an, an empty karaoke bar with just my mom cheering us on. But I was, oh, it was that's because so you know good. the first line is left a good job in the city. It was perfect. Yes. <laughs> and but how great is that that your parents were obviously very supportive and singing right there with you? Which oh my gosh, yeah, it's amazing. Very supportive. I um I think my my parents were they just I think they've always just wanted me and my sister to be happy, and so they um. Yeah, my my mom. I I remember calling her after on one particularly bad day at my law firm and sobbing, and um, I think it was Facetime. And she, I just remember her saying, "Quit right now! Quit right now!" <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> like she just was worried about me. You yeah, know, yeah. Me to be happy. Yeah, and and they probably trust that you'll you're going to land on your feet. You're you always. Yeah. Have. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, they knew that I'm actually a little, I'm like too prudent to actually yes. <laughs> not 
like there's got to be some type a in in there yeah exactly like they knew somehow i would not end up ever asking them for money you know (laughs) yeah yeah so who are the complicated women that inspire you mary um you can draw from real life or fiction or both oh my gosh that's such a fun question Okay. Well, the the one who stands out as kind of um, one of my first like favorite people and role models was my seventh grade English teacher, Miss Chansey. Nice. She was my seventh grade English teacher and she would say things that just blew my, every day she would say mm. something that blew my mind. And I still remember a lot of them, like, like out of the blue one day she said, um, never forget that amateurs built the ark and professionals built the Titanic. Oh. <laughs> she would just drop these bits of wisdom on us and I, you know how, that one. how old are you in seventh grade like 12 or 11 yeah. or 12 I mean it was just stuff that would blow my mind and she she assigned us these these really ambitious assignments looking back for you know for like 11 year olds we had to make a poetry notebook where we had to we had to write every kind of poem so we had to write a sonnet we had to write haiku we had to write free form and it's just like 20 different, you know, forms of poetry we actually had to write. So there was no like, let's read and discuss. I mean, we we also did reading and discussing, but it wasn't just limited to that. It was like, no, all of you are actually going to create a chapbook right. at 11 right. <laughs> um, and understand iambic pentameter. And, right. Um, so she was pretty great and, but, and cursed like cursed in class oh, which was fantastic. Also super fun <laughs> when you're in middle school yes um and she also I remember pulled me aside at the end of the year of seventh grade and said and she pulled me into the hallway and she said um you need to loosen up oh which God. was I know she said like it is okay if you get a B like, oh, you get a B in life. Someone and should have told me that oh I, I needed that teacher I, right yeah I it it shocked me. Like, I remember thinking, what? I'm loose. Like, why is she saying this? <laughs> I'm fine. And then over the years, I've thought about that. And I'm like, she really, she really was looking out for me, you know? Oh, that's a great story. And especially, you know, at school, teachers can say things like the Ark and the Titanic, which is amazing. But they don't usually say things like loosen up get a bad grade because teachers want good students, right? It makes right. their lives easier. It makes control of the classroom easier. Right. Um, so that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Love her. Love her. Yeah. Good. So early on in Privilege, Annie Googles Tyler and she finds out a little bit about him, including this line, which we cannot ignore because we talk about this a lot on our podcast. He was a Pisces, but didn't believe in astrology. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first of all, what's your sign? <laughs> My sun sign is oh, oh forget <laughs> it. Now we're in the mess. love. We're in love. <laughs> so now you speak our language. Yes. Now okay, great. We're all on the same page. Yes. Yes. Um Taurus. Oh, oh the Taurus. You just talked about a Taurus. Liz Feldman, right? Who created Dead to Me. The show yeah. Dead to Me. Okay. Yes, she's a Taurus. Mm-hmm. Yes. But since you, since you raised it, your moon or your rising sign? So my, I'm a moon in Leo and I'm rising Scorpio. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. No wonder you're so complicated. (laughs) Seriously. 
Yeah, we are. So, we I'm a Leo and she's an Aries. And so there's lots of references to fire signs and 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 astrology on our show. We can't help. It. I went to a yoga retreat a few week, weekends ago at Kripalu. And there was this whole astrology session where we we found our moon signs and everyone talked about their moon sign. And so many people said, like, I thought that this was crap. And I still mm-hmm. kind of do. But mm-hmm. I do feel like, you know, this resonates or this actually yeah. explains something to me. We've tested this theory, though. Like, I read this whole article that we talked about on one of our quick caps. Was it in The Atlantic or The New Yorker? It was in The New Yorker about the rise of astrology and particularly with millennials, how it's really becoming, like, legitimized. And then we've tested this out in real life. Like, no, it doesn't. No. No, when we bring it up at a cocktail party, people still look at us like we're totally They do. <laughs> they do. So she's like, I don't care what that article said, Kate. It is not becoming mainstream. You also referenced the Myers Briggs test in your in privilege as well, which is another thing we like to talk about. Not as much on the podcast, but privately we do. So I knew that we were. Do you know your Myers Briggs? Yes, I am an INFJ. Oh, which was what um in in the book who one of them was that is it? Who is it? Yeah, I can't even remember. It's how Annie Tuckington. It's Annie to Henry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when they first started. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I'm ESTJ. Yeah, I'm the extrovert over here. Are you? And how about you? INTJ. I, oh, INTJ. And I'm pretty cuspy on the T and the F, so mm-hmm. very similar. Interesting. I yeah, I really I'm into Myers Briggs and I'm into astrology. I had mm-hmm. I had a reading last year and it was kind of eerie how much she predicted. Yeah, and I we she recorded the session for me. It was over the internet like this. It was a video meeting and. I looked back on it. I rewatched it a few weeks ago and it was like, whoa, that's creepy how much, or I oh. guess it's not creepy. I should have seen it coming, right. but like, um, she really nailed a bunch of stuff that's happened in the last year. Oh, that's oh, so we, we might need this contact. Yeah. Info. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I, def- I, I talk, I know Myers-Briggs, but that can change. And I don't like that. I like that astrology is always the same. You cannot change the day you were born and how the planets were positioned and all of that. You can't change that. That never changes it with your personality or anything. That's just part of you. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of Myers-Briggs as changing. But I got yeah, I guess it can if it you can. Yes. Also it's dependent yeah. on how you answer the questions yeah. is what I always felt like. Like right. I get some of these questions, I'm like, mm, I you know, yeah. so there's there's I think you think there's more subjectivity right. that can be baked into that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I always think other people should do your Myers-Briggs because I'd be like, no, no, you're not that. Right. People can't self-assess. Yes. Yeah. What you're saying. Yes, right. that's true. Yeah. So we've talked about it a little bit, but um, how there are so many authors or lawyers turned authors out there. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like... How, do, how does being a lawyer factor into, I mean, aside from the obvious, the subject matter, you really do incorporate it um, into your work. Um, but anything, any other ways that you feel that law school or being a lawyer prepared you for writing and being an author? I do think this, I, maybe I'm saying something kind of obvious and superficial, but I do think the kind of sitting down for a long period of time mm. and having to churn out a lot of writing mm-hmm. or or even reading like yeah. just being like really immersed in words for hours at a time and not 
not being bashful about just like quantity, you know, like churning out a bunch of, of words. I think law school really helped with that because, you know, you have these, right, you have these like exam for people who didn't go to law school, like your exams are like essay based and you, you write as much as possible over however many hours and you're just, you know, trying to, to hit a high word count and be smart. <laughs> yeah. And that's a lot of writing fiction yeah. too, I think. Um, that's so interesting. And- I haven't, I have never heard anyone say that, but obviously that's such a big part of both of those sort of professions. Or at least it is part for my process for writing fiction. Like I think there's like, I, I, I know I have friends who are writers who are a lot more careful in their, in their first drafts. Like they, you know, Mm -hmm. will sit there and kind of think over a sentence for a while. I don't think over any sentence really in the first draft. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I'm just trying to get it on paper and get the story on paper. And then later through revision, I'll, I'll actually listen to the sound of the sentence and see if I like think about word choice. I mean, of course there's a little bit of that in a first draft, but mainly, and I think it's my own way of overcoming resistance and like the psychological Mm -hmm. Like, you know, just all of that, all of those obstacles around sitting down to face a blank screen. Yes. My way of dealing with that is just to charge through, like just to plow <laughs> through. So with you on that, which makes me wonder though, how, what about revision? Revision isn't something you can kind of plow through, right? How do you right. approach that? Yeah. And then revision, I just like, that's actually fun. And also I think I draw from skills I practiced in law school. Um, like I get in a different headspace. Like I think I'm much, I just become like an editor and like read and sort of I'll do, I'll make what I think of as a reverse outline where I'm like outlining what's there in the Mm. draft and then tweaking that into what it should be and then moving pieces around. It's more like putting a puzzle together, I think. And, um, and then kind of, and then as needed, you know, like, oh, here's a scene. There's a scene here that's missing that I haven't written yet. And so then to write that scene, I'll have to get back in the headspace of mm-hmm. like unleashing creativity and just kind of being wild and free. But then so it's like shifting between those two different mindsets, which I think is fun because yeah. you yeah. get to exercise both. Right. It keeps things like fresh and different and yeah. challenging. Yeah. 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 And do you still teach writing and storytelling? I do. Yes. I teach fiction writing and I teach storytelling for the moth. So I'll kind of travel around and we go to businesses and, um, and, and work with people on, on telling their personal stories. It's really fun. And now you're a mother too. Yes. Of the story that you had in your acknowledgments that you sold it on, sold, sold privilege on the day that your son was born. Is that right? Yeah. So privilege sold the day that I had my son and it was, so it was like the best 24 hours of my life. <laughs> um, he, like I woke up the next day in the, my hospital bed, you know, like checking email and sending people pictures of the baby and Claire, I had an email from Claire, my agent saying like, we've sold privilege and in the U S in the U S and that was, you know, that was the big, that was the big thing. So, um, so that was really exciting. And then um, but it had sold based on sample chapters and a synopsis um, because it had, you know, I, I had had an early draft that I had that I had written a couple of years earlier. But it, well, several things like a lot had changed. Not, a lot needed to change in that story, like massive amounts to the point that like the synopsis didn't match what that first draft wow. was. And some of that is because of what had happened, like in yeah. in culture, because right. I was trying. To, I wanted to set it in the present, but now all that like the Me Too movement had happened and. Um, really the Brock Turner case was, I think a big, a big kind of cultural milestone that changed how that story needed to be told because it was so similar to what happened in, 
in my book. Um, And so it was really interesting, like writing fiction before something has happened in the world and then realizing after that thing actually happens in the world, like now my book doesn't make a lot of sense in the world. Like it doesn't like just the kind of subconscious ways in which I was writing it in a world where, where that victim impact statement, I don't know if you guys remember that, but that she had that Mm. really powerful anonymous victim impact statement, right. That went viral. Um, Yeah. Like, I feel like when it comes to kind of campus sexual assault, that was like a really, that was a before and after moment, you know, like there was like the world before that and the world after that. So then you came even more timely. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think it became more timely and it also like then I also really needed to rewrite it. Like because yeah. it didn't make sense anymore. And was that challenging you for you either with that book or now just now as your mother incorporating that other hat into your life? Oh yes. So okay, right. So that's why I was saying that. So then I had to re so then I had to write privilege with a newborn. Yeah. And that that was really tough. And you know, I'm sure like you guys are both moms, so you yes. know. I mean it, I think it was obviously tough to find the time and energy because of sleep and all that, but, but also just mentally, because I found I didn't care about, you know, it's that biological function of, I only cared about keeping my baby alive. So then I just didn't care about writing this book. I, I remember journaling. I started doing morning pages again because I, I, and I would write, I would, because I was stuck and I would write like, how do I start caring about writing fiction again? I just yeah. don't care enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily I, I actually found that if I, once I started writing these characters again, I did, I did care about them. Right. Like, and that, that was a fun discovery. Once I, once I got back into it, I really did want to tell, still tell their story, but yeah, I would just like, I would leave the house. I had to leave the apartment to write for sure. And I would stay gone until I tried to stay gone until I had 10 handwritten pages. That was my goal is to write 10 handwritten pages every day. And sometimes I would reach it and sometimes I wouldn't, but, um, but yeah, that, that was what I aimed for. And that, that was how, how it got written was by doing it in just those little increments. Right. And do you find that that stayed with you, the little increments now that he's older and you're now on book three? Yeah, I've written, I, I found that works so well. And also handwriting. Was I was just going to say, do you handwrite? I do now. Yeah, I started then. That was, I because I was just, the computer really freaked me. Like I was just staring and couldn't write. And so I thought, well, let me try to write it by hand. And it, it was easier to write by hand. It felt less permanent or something. Yes. Sometimes I would also even trick myself into writing a scene by starting by, you know, doing journaling or morning pages. And I would then it would suddenly sneak into a scene. Like I was like, you know, being of two minds, like it's like I'm tricking one of my minds into not recognizing the fact that we're actually writing fiction now. Lauren Groff does that too. She writes her first draft by hand and then throws it in the garbage of the entire book. She writes it by hand and then throws it in the garbage and then has to recall her memory and what she wanted to say. Cause she says the first draft for her is just exploratory. She doesn't even know what she's writing about at that time. So then she starts over. It gives me so much anxiety to hear that she throws it in the garbage. I, I hope by that she means she puts it in a drawer. Like just getting rid of something. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ellen Hildebrand writes it all by hand too, but I don't think she throws it away. I think she, I think she keeps it. Yeah, and she does two a year, which I can't understand. But. Oh my gosh. She is so prolific. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, re- I, I started looking at uh, once I, once I found that this worked well for me, I looked it up and yeah, there are a bunch of writers. Alexander Chi writes by hand and Joyce Carol Oates has written by hand. I think there's some people who don't, it's not like they write everything by hand, but they say they have, and they've. I, I always write by hand in the beginning and also when I'm stuck, but I don't really like that very quickly goes into my typewritten notes. It doesn't stay handwritten for me. It's not, it just, it just activates something else in my brain that allows me to push through whatever I'm not pushing through. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would do that too. And then for me, that, that just snowballed into doing the whole thing that way. So now I have, I mean, I was transcribing this morning, so I'm in the transcribing phase. So I have like all these little notebooks. I mean, I'm showing you guys, but I realize this is a podcast and no one can see them. Um, (laughs) I have all these notebooks of just a pile of notebooks that I'm trying to make sense of now. Wow. And then you type them all out? And then I type them all out. Yeah. Because I, because yeah. I cut some stuff. And yeah, I, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I'm just curious what you would say if your son said someday that he wants to go to law school. Oh. <laughs> I know he's young. I know he's really young. But. I think I would, I think I would just, I, I would not even just encourage him. I think I would actually introduce him to lawyers to talk to them about what their lives yeah. are like the different. Mm-hmm areas that he, where he thinks he might want to practice because I do, that was one thing. And I, I don't regret going to law school. I mean, I love law school, but I, but I do realize looking back, like if I actually knew what being, a, if I had shadowed a lawyer, I might yeah. have been like, Hmm, I don't know if this is the profession for me. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe I still yeah. want it to go, but. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 See it firsthand. I didn't have that experience either. That probably would have been helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have any, I didn't, my parents weren't lawyers and. Yeah. Me neither. I don't know. I think I needed to be doing it for myself, but who knows? Yeah. Uh, but I don't regret law school at all either. I, yeah. Law school was, was a lot of fun. And- it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fun. No, I, you know, not that I know that much law now, but I, I do think it, you know, it kind of, it shapes the way you view the world. Oh, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It does for better or worse. For better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And also I think to some extent it sounds true for you too. And I know it is for me and Kate, it's kind of as part of my personality anyway. So law school just kind of fit that. Yeah. And, and that helped me lean into it a little bit. And now I can take that with me when I'm doing other things, but yeah. I, I can't get away from it. Quit yeah. job. When I quit my job, when I am working full time, whatever it is, it's always there. It's always part of me. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. I wish we could have done this down in Nashville, my favorite mm. city, but you know, with, know. With no travel right now. There's none of that. Happening. Right. That's yeah. what I said to well, Kate. I'm like, should we just go there? Yeah, please do. If you ever come it. here, tell me. We'll go. I, I, I will let you know. I've been a few times. I'm a big fan. I love when people visit. I mean, I haven't even lived here that long, but I love when people visit because it's, it's just an excuse to do fun stuff here, you know? How long have you been there? Just since July. I've never been, so I definitely have to go. Kate has been making me think I need to try it out. I'm also a fan of Kristen Cavallari, and she lives there. She lives here. Yeah, I love her yeah. show, and <laughs> I, nice. I don't. Not I recently to... saw her show. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, and she shows like interesting things, and yeah. I'm like, oh, look at this. Look what they do. This is yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah it's it's happening. It is happening. I am a huge country music fan, which is part of the reason I love it. But I just love live music, and I just love that. I love that city. Oh, so, nice. yeah. Are well, you, if I get you down there, in the south, or do you just like? No, country? hell no. I'm from Long just, Island. Not even close. I love that you love country music. <laughs> I know. I don't know how that happened. I actually, yes, I do. I um love uh 
lyrics on this love songwriters and storytellers. And to me, like when I discovered country music, I was like, where has this been hiding oh, for me? Because that. Yeah. this is perfect for me. And I, it was when I was on my first maternity leave, I got a new car and had Sirius XM and I just hit the highway. And it was probably the first time oh, I started listening to country music. Like I had a roommate from Texas and she used to try to get me into it, but this just, I don't know, it just stuck. And I've been into it ever since. That's and my great. son's 12. So yeah, yeah, it's not going I, away. I also really like it. I, I am like a country music fan too. And I had stopped listening to it for, well, when I, when I was in New York, but I yeah. coming back here, I'm like, oh yeah, I love this stuff. Also, yeah. there are, so the, I don't know if either of you is a Bachelor fan, yes. <laughs> but I am. And the, like, this is Bachelor town here really? i mean so many people who have been on that show move here and it's oh my god i didn't really know that yeah they're sightings i know and my nanny like knows them so every i'm always <laughs> she hangs out with them oh my gosh so That's i'm always great. making her tell me give me gossip right. about bachelor contestants it's really fun wow Look so there's that. a lot happening yeah. <laughs> music, it's not just music city there's a lot okay. drawing me in there yes <laughs> Yeah, you'll have to visit. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for talking to us. We loved Privilege. Highly recommend it to to everyone. And I can't wait to get this episode out there so other people can hear more about you. Because we like on this podcast, we not only talk about the things that we love, the books we love, the the TV shows and the movies, it's we are really interested in the creators behind them. Um, I think it gives so much more context to the work that they've made. And thank you so much for sharing with us. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.